0: When the Spirit was given on the day of Pentecost, uh, we heard the gospel proclaimed in many languages all at once, and the Word of God was received by a multitude of people and went from being a select sect of Jews to including every tribe and tongue. And so as we hear the teaching text each Sunday in this teaching series, we're rooting ourselves in the person of the Holy Spirit. We want to hear the the word proclaimed in different languages that are represented from within this community. And so to that end, Bella is going to come and read our teaching text for us today.
1: Hi everyone, I'm Isabella, Um, I'm Honduran American and so I'll be reading in Spanish and then in English. Um, So Juan 16, versículo 12. Muchas cosas me quedan aún por decirles que por ahora no podrían soportar, pero cuando venga el Espíritu de la verdad, Él los guiará a toda la verdad, porque no hablará por su propia cuenta, sino que dirá sólo lo que oiga y les anunciará las cosas por venir. Él me glorificará porque tomará de lo mío y se lo dará a conocer a ustedes. Todo cuanto tiene el Padre es mío. Por eso les dije que el Espíritu tomará de lo mío y se lo dará a conocer a ustedes. All right, so John chapter 16, verse 12. I have much more to say to you, more than you can now bear. But when he, the Spirit of truth, comes, he will guide you into all the truth. He will not speak on his own. He will speak only what he hears, and he will tell you what is yet to come. He will glorify me because it is from me that he will receive what he will make known to you. All that belongs to the Father is mine. That is why I said the Spirit will receive from me uh, what he will make known to you. The word of the Lord.
0: Thanks be to God. So uh, whenever... a television show becomes somewhat successful and the producers realize there's actually a little bit of money to be made here if we can just keep this story going long enough, there's a technique that they use to keep you engaged, to keep you watching over the course of many seasons, and that is that they begin to develop the backstory of every last character. They start writing in that episode which suddenly shows up somewhere around season three where there's an episode devoted entirely to the childhood of a peripheral character on the cast. And they do that again and again and again to fill in the backstory to the plot that hooked you in the first place. What they're really doing, though, is they're drawing you further in so that now you're not just cheering on the hero and you're not just hooked by uh, the attention-grabbing ending to the last episode, but you are deeply invested in the life and backstory of each member, even of the periphery cast. Suddenly every character matters to you and every scene is an important one and they've got you. Now, according to ratings, uh, in 2021, the most successful television show today is This Is Us, (laughs) (laughs) Um, which apparently there's a few (laughs) few fans of in the room. Now, if, if you do watch that show, then there was a time when you really only cared to figure out how the dad died, right? That, that was the thing that you were interested in. But then they started ringing out the history of every last person that's ever come in contact with this one family. It's just one detailed backstory after another. Now, the reason that I bring that up is because that's a little bit of what it's like to participate in the life of a church that at first you're just drawn into the plot of a larger community, the themes of what God is doing among a people. But the longer you're around, the more time you spend in that community, the backstory begins to develop behind the individual faces. And the plot still matters. God really is still writing a narrative within a community but you're also attached to and empathetic to each and every character within that plot line because you know not just the big story that we are a part of together, but you know the unique twists and turns, the backstory that landed him or her in that seat receiving this teaching and trying to apply it this week. And that adds a richness and a texture and a grit to the plot that makes it a biblical story and not just a fairy tale. So we're in the middle of this practice titled Demonstrating the Gospel. And it's all about the Holy Spirit. We started last week with the Holy Spirit as a person to know, not a power to capture. And if you missed that, I would suggest going back and hearing it. We, we kind of drew a frame that we're going to live in and, and fill in over the course of the next couple of months. But the plot of the story we're in goes something like this. You cannot tell the story of the early church without the power of the Holy Spirit. If you read through the New Testament, God's indwelling presence is on every single page, working in ordinary people in miraculous ways. Now, across the spectrum of the modern church, people have dealt with that phenomenon in all sorts of ways. Uh, Some have done theological gymnastics to try to make sense of why God might have given them the, the ancient church more than he's given us, the modern church. Others have essentially turned the New Testament into a foundation for pep talks, where they they say more or less, God will do these things among us if we just want it bad enough. And both of those are reductions of the biblical story, tragic misunderstandings of the whole thing, but they're both born out of this common fact that you cannot tell the story of the church without the power of the Spirit. But there's also a texture and grit in the character development on the pages of the New Testament that's underneath that larger plot that goes something like this. You cannot tell the story of the early church without the power of the Spirit, but you also can't tell the story of the early church without the suffering of this world. Because the book of Acts uh, does tell stories of supernatural power, but it's also just chock full of suffering, confusion, and pain. And that is seen systemically through things like poverty and racism and power abuse within the story. And it's also seen personally through things like lost loved ones, even children, through broken friendships, even broken friendships among the church leaders. There's deep disillusionment and pain in the story of the book of Acts as well. So if you tell the story of the Holy Spirit outside of the world of suffering, you rip it from its reality and you turn it into a fairy tale. And that won't work for us because I know there's a story behind each one of your faces. And those stories, your stories, are too real and too resilient to be soothed by a fairy tale that won't hold up beneath actual life in the actual world that we live in. And that is why my favorite metaphor for the Spirit in all of Scripture is that of water. Because it is a metaphor that brings these two things together, a real, gritty, unflinching honesty about this world and an unwavering, reckless, joyful hope that breaks into this very world. So the scripture introduces us to the person of the Holy Spirit primarily through metaphor. And for the next three weeks, we're going to trace three of the primary metaphors through which we understand the person of the Spirit, water, breath, and dove. We'll start each Sunday with that conversation Jesus had on the final night of his life, where he said, in summary, I'm going away, but that's going to make it so much better. And from there, we will trace a metaphor through the whole of the Bible, discovering what was in Jesus' imagination that made such a ludicrous statement logical. And as we trace these metaphors, we're going to make our way through the same four movements that will become familiar to you over time. They are the Spirit with the Father, The Spirit in the Son, the Spirit fills us, and then the Spirit through us. Now all that may sound a bit confusing at this moment, but I promise it'll make sense as we go. Today we begin with water. So the Spirit with the Father. I'm going to take you through the story of the Old Testament briefly through three scenes, creation, fall, and promise. Will you turn with me in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 1. If you're not familiar with navigating the scriptures, you're looking and trying to find it, it's page 1. So if you just turn with me to page one, sentence one, we're going to begin with the very first words of the story, and that's because on the Bible's opening line right there, we meet the Spirit working in tandem with the Father and the Son co-creating. So this is scene one, creation, Genesis chapter one, verse one. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now, the earth was formless and empty, darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. Now, in the ancient Near Eastern world that the Genesis story emerged from, the waters did not evoke imagery of a pleasant stream on a summer morning. The waters were feared. They were symbolic of chaos. All of the other popular ancient Near Eastern religions involved a pantheon of gods doing battle, and creation came out of the violence of the god who won that battle. The most feared, dangerous gods in all of those stories were the gods of the sea, the the, the gods of the unexplored, dark depths that people had not gotten to at that point. So in the world that Genesis emerged from, water was synonymous with chaos. One scholar says the best translation for this passage is, "...and the Spirit of God was hovering over the chaotic, destructive waters of creation." And as the Old Testament moves forward, we see that water continues to be imagery of chaos, disaster, and disorder in the book of Job, in Psalm 74 and 89, and in the biblical portrayal of both the Egyptian and the Philistinian oppressors. This is a part of the biblical narrative. So bring all of that context now back into the Bible's first words. In the beginning, the Holy Spirit was hovering, waiting, And when the Father gives the word, the Spirit touches the chaos and there's order. Suddenly light is separated from dark, land is separated from sea, but there's more than just organization of all of the chaos, there's actually life. In the place where there was once confusion, dysfunction, and disorder, there's now delight, wonder, joy, and hope. So from the Bible's opening sentence, we gather the Holy Spirit does not just get rid of disorder. That would be pretty good. But that's not the whole story. The Holy Spirit makes the place of darkness and fear, an oasis teeming with kingdom life. And that brings us to scene two, which is fall. Of course, not long after that, Adam and Eve rebel against God. This is the conflict we typically call the fall. And they leave the Garden of Eden walking east. Now, did you hear that? Walking east. That's why the world that we actually live in has a whole lot more in common with chaos than it does with peace. And it's why, though there are moments of wonder and delight and joy, the majority of life is still confusion, dysfunction, and disorder. They hang around, haunting our day in and day out. Scene three, promise. Now turn quite a bit to the right in your Bible to Ezekiel chapter 47. I'm going to meet you there in just a minute. So as this story rolls on, water, which once symbolized the fearful and unknown, comes to symbolize the promise of God made known, meaning the Holy Spirit. The Spirit of God is then described through the poetry of water in the Psalms and Proverbs, in the prophecies of Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Joel, and then in the New Testament by the gospel writer John. You cannot miss this theme. But the promise becomes most vividly alive, I believe, in the beautiful prophecy of uh, Ezekiel. So I'm going to read you a good, lengthy chunk of scripture, which is risky, to be honest. But I believe in you. And, and I want you to see it as a picture because Ezekiel is describing a vision. So if it helps you, follow along with me word by word. And if it helps you, close your eyes and just let me read this over you and see it in your mind's eye. But this is Ezekiel 47, I'm going to read you verses 1 through 12. "'The man brought me back to the entrance to the temple, and I saw water coming out from under the threshold of the temple toward the east, for the temple faced east. The water was coming down from under the south side of the temple and south of the altar. He then brought me out to the north gate and led me around the outside of the outer gate facing east, and the water was trickling from the south side.' As the man went eastward with a measuring line in his hand, he measured off a thousand cubits and then led me through the water that was ankle deep. He measured off another thousand cubits and led me through the water that was knee deep. He measured off another thousand and led me through the water that was up to the waist. He measured off another thousand, but now it was a river that I could not cross because the water had risen and it was deep enough to swim in, a river no one could cross. He asked me, Son of man, do you see this? Then he led me back to the bank of the river. When I arrived there, I saw a great number of trees on each side of the river. He said to me, "'This water flows toward the eastern region and goes down into Ereba, where it enters the Dead Sea. When it empties into the sea, the salty water becomes fresh. Swarms of living creatures will live wherever the river flows.'" There will be large numbers of fish because this water flows there and makes the salt water fresh. So, where the river flows, everything will live. Fishermen will stand along the shore from Engedi to Englame. There will be places for spreading nets. The fish will be of many kinds, like the fish of the Mediterranean Sea. But the swamps and marshes will not become fresh, they will be left for salt. Fruit trees of all kinds will grow on both banks of the river. Their leaves will not wither, nor will their fruit fail. Every month they will bear fruit, because the water from the sanctuary flows to them. Their fruit will serve for food, and their leaves for healing. Can you see this? Can you see what Ezekiel's seeing? Water's flowing from the temple, and what's only a trickle in the innermost room becomes a river as that water flows where? East. East. East, the direction Adam and Eve walk out of Eden after the fall. East, that's the direction representing the human condition, the devastating reach for control that resulted in chaos, not order, and death, not life. A river flowing east means this prophecy is for you and for me and for everyone who's ever lived in chaos. A river flowing east, bringing overwhelming life wherever it goes. Alongside this river, there's fishermen because there's fish of every kind swimming in this river's current, just like there's people of every nation, tribe, and tongue, of every socioeconomic bracket, every background, every d- degree of having it together and falling apart that make up the family of God. There's fruitful trees along the bank of this river. The fruit feeds the nations, and the leaves heal their diseases. And that river then empties into the Dead Sea. The Dead Sea. It's called that because nothing lives in it. The the waters of the Dead Sea are 25% mineral, and that means that no living species that we're aware of can actually stay alive in these waters. And yet when this river from the temple spills into it, it purifies that water, so that fish of every kind are swimming there. And a once lifeless place is now teeming with kingdom life. In the place of fear and confusion and darkness and disorder, there's a promise, I'll pour out my spirit And it will be like an unstoppable current of life and peace. This vision is so much more than just a warm sentiment by the way. It's so much more than an inspired moment of poetry on a particularly good morning with a great cup of coffee. It was originally written to an oppressed people group that were living in exile under a Babylonian captor. This is a vision written right into the suffering of this world. And within this invitation, there's a two- I'm sorry, within the vision, there's a twofold invitation. The first is an invitation to come. Before Ezekiel even sees where the river's going, he's invited to get into it, right? Ankle deep, and then knee deep, and then waist deep until he's swimming. So, so this invitation is to come in. And that invitation was so essential to the earliest Christians. The ancient Tertullian referred to Jesus as the heavenly fish, and to Christians as little fish. So you know those unbearably cheesy bumper stickers that so many people like to put on their car, of that Christian fish symbol, which if that's on your car in the parking lot right now, I just want to say, well done, because (laughs) that's actually an ancient Christian symbol representing one of the most brilliant pictures in the whole of the Scripture. It comes from a rich understanding of who God is and the life that He's invited us into. And so there's an invitation to come, but secondly, there's an invitation to become, to become a part of the current that heals the world. So what if right now, in the place of your fear and confusion, he's inviting you to come, to wade into the waters where chaos becomes order, and and, and to not only come, but to become, to float along and swim in this river's current until you are a part of the stream that brings healing to the darkest places in the world? Well, all of that brings us to our second movement, the Spirit in the Son. So if you turn with me from the book of Ezekiel to the Gospel of John, we're going to begin in chapter 7. Welcome to the New Testament, where Jesus turns Ezekiel's vision into a living invitation. But how Jesus does that is so compelling, and to be honest, completely angsty and super awesome. So, uh, John chapter 7, I'm going to begin in verse 37. It's a familiar passage, but I want to give some unfamiliar context to it. John 7, beginning in verse 37. On the last and greatest day of the festival, now I want to stop there for just a second. Because the key to understanding everything that comes next, and how scandalous and threatening and dangerous what Jesus had to say in this moment was, it all hangs on that phrase, on the last and greatest day of the festival. Now, the festival that's being referred to here is the Feast of Tabernacles, or Sukkot in Hebrew. It's a week-long festival where the entire nation of Israel would descend on Jerusalem and camp there in tabernacles, which, as we talked about last week, is just Hebrew for tents. So in Brooklyn, where I lived and ministered for the past 12 years, my neighborhood happened to be home to the largest Hasidic Jewish population anywhere in the world outside of Jerusalem. And every year in the fall, you could walk through that neighborhood and every balcony or terrace or patio would have a homemade tabernacle on it, a a building that they had constructed that the entire family would sleep in every night for a week, remembering Sukkot. In fact, the Feast of Tabernacles, the autumn festival, just ended within this last week. And so maybe you even know a family that was celebrating it. Uh, This was day seven of that festival. So there's a festival Jesus attends in John 7. It's this festival. During Sukkot, there's a daily temple ritual where everyone comes from their tabernacles and they gather at the temple at the same time every day and the priest would fill these giant cisterns with water and they would go down to a nearby watering hole and then carry those up to the temple steps and then as the people sang psalms and celebrated, the priest would pour the cistern down the temple steps so they would trickle down and make something like a small stream running from the temple steps. They were reenacting Ezekiel's vision. This was a whole nation praying together, symbolically looking forward to the day when Ezekiel's vision would become life and would flow out of this very temple. But this is day seven. It's the last and greatest day of that festival. And on the seventh day, the procession marched from the watering hole up to the temple not once but seven times. They're carrying jar after jar after jar from the spring to the temple steps and the people are singing psalms until their throats are sore. And by the seventh jar, there would be so much water pouring down the temple steps that something like a small river would be flowing east. See, this was a holy moment. This was the moment that the whole week had been building up to. It was the high point of a high holiday. It would be reverent and still. You might be able to hear a pin drop Tears would be welling up behind the eyes of some as they're longing for God to finally bring this prophecy to life. And in that moment, on the last and greatest day of the festival, in the middle of the final procession, as water's running down the temple steps and huge crowds are longing for God to fulfill his prophecy, Jesus stood up and said in a loud voice, interrupting the moment, if anyone is thirsty, you can come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, rivers of living water will flow from within them. You starting to see how Jesus got himself killed? (laughs) You see, he's making a dramatic interruption, time for the highest moment of a high holiday to extend a twofold invitation, the invitation to come. Are you thirsty? Come to me and drink. I am the living river. What you're waiting on in the temple, you can find right here. And secondly, the invitation to become, to become a part of this river's current, because all who come to me, the source, then become the source. Rivers of living water will flow where? From within you. John goes on to say, by this he meant the Spirit. Will you look down at your Bibles with me? Uh, All this, what, by this he meant the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were later to receive. So everything the river was in Ezekiel's vision, Jesus then became in the world. He left paradise to come after us who had wandered east. He called his disciples fishers of people, just like the fishermen lining the streams in Ezekiel's vision. Like the trees lining the river, he fed the hungry and he healed the sick. And then through his death and resurrection, he created life in the most lifeless place. And for all those who came to him, who took him up on the invitation, the promise came alive in them too, but not right away. Because John does tell us that Jesus was referring to the Spirit when he gave that offensively awesome invitation. But he's quick to add that the Spirit wasn't given at that very moment. By this, he meant the Spirit whom those who believed in him were later to receive. So when did they actually receive the promise? When did what Jesus talked about in John 7 finally come to life here on the earth? Well, that happens in Acts 2. So let's turn a few more pages to the right to Acts chapter 2. This brings us to our next moment, the Spirit fills us. So the Spirit Jesus promised in John 7 is then given in Acts 2 when the disciples are in Jerusalem again for a festival again. Acts 2 verse 17. In the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. So the spirit is poured out. Sounds a lot like water, right? And then who's filled with the spirit? All people. Everyone who wants it. Everyone humble enough to look at their own internal world and say, I can't order this chaos. Jump down to verse 33. Exalted to the right hand of God, he, meaning Jesus, has received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit and has poured out, there it is again, water, what you now see and hear. The river of living water has now been poured out. Come and drink. Oh, but you don't need to come to the temple to drink. The life of God is now available to be pressed down into every individual human life so that you can become a living well filled to overflowing so that the water spills the banks of your life to bring healing to the world around you. And then everything the river was in Ezekiel's vision, the church became in the world. The church went out to feed the hungry. The church began to heal the sick. The church began to proclaim the good news. They were not a holy huddle in a sacred building any longer. They were a river flowing east, overwhelming dead places with unstoppable life. And that theme that began on the first page it doesn't end until the last page. So if you would turn with me to the final page in the scriptures, Revelation chapter 22. And while you flick through those pages, I'm going to make a brief pit stop, one chapter before in Revelation 21, where it says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. So this is John's vision, not of a distant utopia, but of heaven on earth, heaven and earth as a restored one again, creation redeemed. And I'm all for that. But I've always wondered, what's up with this no ocean bit? Right? I mean, I like the ocean. I think the sun setting over the sea might be as close to heaven on earth as I've ever been. Why on earth would God need to take the Pacific away in order to bring heaven? Well, what if this isn't about the absence of water? What if it's about the absence of chaos? Remember page one, the spirit of God was hovering over the chaotic, destructive waters of creation. That's the point being made on the final page. It's the redemption of what went wrong from page one. Chaos is gone. Disorder is gone. Destruction is gone. The Dead Sea is now a place of life. That's the vision John's having. Now I'll meet you in the final chapter, Revelation 22. Then the angel showed me a river of the water of life as clear as crystal. There's no no ocean, but there is a river. (laughs) Flowing from the throne of God of God and of the lamb down the middle of the great street of the city on each side of the river stood the tree of life bearing 12 crops of fruit yielding its fruit every month and the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations does that sound familiar yes. that should sound familiar it's Ezekiel's river the one he swam in it's Jesus's river the one he said would flow from within you it's the eternal current the forever kingdom to come, the, the, the heaven on Earth, finally one kind of river. And that's the story, cover to cover. That's the story of the scriptures. The psychologist Kurt Thompson, he says that one of the things that makes people different or distinct from all animals is that we tell stories. There's no other species in the world that we've ever been able to find that they tell stories of any kind, and yet we've never found a single civilization in human history that didn't tell stories. Every tribe, every village, as far back as we can explore, they're all a storytelling kind of people. And that's because we live off of story. We derive our meaning from story. We make sense of our experience by story, and we are changed by story. John Steinbeck, talking about the biblical story, said this, A great and lasting story is about everyone, or it will not last. The strange and foreign is not interesting, only the deeply personal and familiar. I think this is the best known story in the world because it's everybody's story. I think it is the symbol story of the human soul. So this story that I've been retelling you this morning, it's not just a fairy tale. It's my story, and it's yours. Can you find yourself in it? Because the end has been written. We've just read it, but we're living somewhere in the middle. We're still in the thick of the plot. It's a living story. Can you find yourself in it? All that brings us to the really, really good part. The Spirit through us. Because Jesus' two-part invitation, it still stands. First, the invitation to come. Last week, we mentioned that Jesus' common model was do and then teach. Experience first and then explanation on the back end of that experience. This is the the same thing we see in the prophecy of Ezekiel. He was invited into the water to swim before he even knew where the river was going. That was the first step. Uh, he's not invited to investigate from the riverbank, but to come and to get in. Now we tend to study the history, but we don't expect the experience. We've been swimming in the waters of the Dead Sea for so long that hope for life, for real life, the kind Ezekiel promised, the kind Jesus promised, the kind rumored in the church's first 30 years, it all just gets filtered through this lifetime of big theory and minimal experience. And usually it's not that we think that God couldn't do it. It's not even that we think that God doesn't want to do it, it's that it takes an experience, it takes a taste of living water to actually wake up the hope that for those of us who have only ever swum in chaos. And so many of us will read a passage like Ezekiel 47 and then instead of like storming the living river like kids on the first hot day of summer, we just look from the riverbank and check it out on our own. But we do the best to continue managing our lives, to pin down and order our interior world. And, and every time I'm sure that I've got it all tidied up, of course, it's just a mess again. We continue to try to manipulate our anxieties into peace and by whatever means we can control. We are swimming in the waters of death. So life sounds great, but then we hold it at a sophisticated distance because we don't have a category for it. So we sit here. Even this morning in a familiar scene, we are people gathered together in the assembly of the faithful to sing songs and pray prayers, rehearsing an ancient story and longing for God to bring it about here and now. And Jesus bursts in again today to say, if anyone is thirsty, come to me and drink. But Rather than come and drink, we consider and discuss we turn his present invitation into an allegorical history. But the story I've been telling you this morning, it's a living story. Can you find yourself in it? Don't watch from the riverbank. The invitation was never, there's a river there, Ezekiel. Do you see it? Do you see where it's going? You see what I'll one day do? Now watch. No, no. The invitation was get in here and swim. Come deeper and deeper and deeper until you are enveloped in the spirit's current. And that's what Jesus was talking about on the final night of his life in the teaching text that Bella read us when he said, All that belongs to the Father is mine. That is why I said, the Spirit will receive from me whatever and I'm sorry, the Spirit will, will receive from me what he will make known to you. Jesus is saying, everything I'm saying to you now is going to go from an idea in your mind to an experience in your life when you receive the Holy Spirit. That's why this is such a staggering improvement. You see, the invitation is participation. And in my personal experience, the, the Christian life without the Holy Spirit works just fine until it suddenly doesn't. Without participation, come and drink, it's just a worldview. And it's the best and most beautiful worldview, but it's just a worldview. And that'll work just fine most of the time. But what do you do with that ongoing battle with infertility? With that mostly silent grief of having something taken from you that never was properly given to you in the first place? And the crushing disappointment of doctor after doctor after doctor of getting your hopes up that this could be the solution and then it's just more nothing. Where does hope come from then? Because a worldview can get you by on ordinary days, but a philosophy cannot heal you from the pain that's in this world. Or what about when you finish this leg of the race and then they hand you the diploma or the job title or a seat at the table or a badge of status? What happens when you get that but you realize that you lost yourself somewhere along the way? And now you can't go 48 hours without checking your email because you're so anxiously attached to keeping alive this part of you because it became you somewhere. Or what about when you stand in front of your friends and family and you make wedding vows and now you're a few years in and he's changed and so have you and you're miserable because you're missing each other? Where does healing come from for broken promises that were supposed to be forever promises? What about when the abuse that you faced in childhood suddenly reemerges in you in adulthood and something you thought you had buried or at least dealt with, it now comes back and you are haunted as an adult from something you pushed deep into your child self? A philosophy doesn't help much then. Or what do you do when the people who shaped your spiritual life let you down? Where do you take the complexity of the community that welcomed you into the family also being the community that wounded you most deeply? That wounded you spiritually, maybe in a way you still haven't recovered from. See, what I'm trying to tell you and be honest about is that turning an invitation into a worldview works for a while. And then it suddenly doesn't. It feels like enough until you're confronted by your own helplessness. A philosophy can't heal you. But the God who spoke order into chaos can. The one who's perfect in power and love can. There's this famous prayer in the Psalms, you know it, you love the last line, say it with me, be still and know that I am God. That's where it ends. It ends in order, that's the destination, but it's not where it begins. It begins with chaos. Can I read you the first lines of that same prayer? God is our refuge and strength and ever-present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth give way and the mountains fall into the heart of the sea, the chaotic waters. Though its waters roar and foam and the mountains quake with their surging, there is a river... You see, there's chaos. It's all around us and it's within us. The mountains quake and the waters foam and that's never going to stop. I know the chaos. There will continue to be chaos. We know the chaos. But did you know that there's a river? There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God. It's the holy place where the Most High dwells. It's Ezekiel's river to swim in. It's Jesus' river from within you. It's Revelation's river that cuts through the heart of the city. There's chaos, but there's a spirit who can order the chaos and not only order it, but make the darkest place come alive and teem with kingdom life. The Holy Spirit brings peace, but peace can't get to spectators. It is the reward of participation beneath your skin. Is there some unique brand of fear, confusion, disorder? Then come into the water Because the invitation is not observation or discussion, it is participation. And the only person who cannot taste this living water is the observer who is content to stand on the riverbank. Are you thirsty? He says. Come and drink. Secondly, there's this invitation to become. The Spirit brings healing, but that's just the start. The Spirit then makes you part of the healing. Everything the river was in the vision, we are invited to become in the world. Ezekiel's vision was a river of living water that flows from within the temple out into the world. Jesus then said, let anyone who's thirsty come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as Scripture said, living water will flow from where? From within them. By this, he meant the Spirit. So you are the source of the living river, according to Jesus. Remember 1 Corinthians 6, where we went last week? Do you not know that your bodies, your individual bodies, are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? So you are the temple. The source of the river is within you now. It flows from you into the dead places, overwhelming them with life. The same Spirit who brings peace to your internal chaos also sends you out as a peacemaker into the city. The Spirit of peace is also the Spirit of peacemaking. These two work together. And over the course of the first 30 years, the 120-person church formed in Acts 2 floods the Roman Empire with such overwhelming life that the empire falls to its knees, not before power, but before love. How does that happen? not just in a fairy tale, but in an actual city with actual people and systems and and social norms and processes and, and power pools. How does that happen in real lives in a real city? the powerfully healed become powerful healers. That's how it happens. How does the Spirit empower mission? Not through our gifts or our strengths, but through our wounds. It would be a mistake of us to glorify the early church. They were nothing special. As they began to gain a bit of momentum, the Roman government did an investigation into this new sect, and the report is recorded in Acts 4. When they realized that they were unschooled, ordinary men... They were astonished, and they took note that these men had been with Jesus. They weren't particularly intelligent, compelling, attractive, or qualified. They were unschooled and ordinary, but they were filled with the same spirit that filled Jesus. And our liberation is in their commonness, not their giftedness. The scandal of the early church wasn't their gifting, it was their commonness. It was that common people powerfully healed become powerful healers. How could Peter stand up, lead a revolution in front of authorities that were threatening his death when he cowered at the social exclusion of a teenage girl a couple of weeks ago because the powerfully healed become powerful healers? How about Mary Magdalene? How on earth could a once demonically demon-possessed woman become a pillar of a movement that took birth in a thoroughly patriarchal society? because the powerfully healed become powerful healers? And how could uncommon eloquent prayers from the lips of ordinary people actually heal bodies and make the disabled stand up and even the dead to rise? The powerfully healed became powerful healers. And how could a spirituality that is built on, on the public execution of a mostly overlooked peasant become the most stunning sociological move in the history of the world any way you measure it because the powerfully healed became powerful healers? The Holy Spirit is not an escape from the suffering of this world, but a way to come alive in the midst of the chaos. There's this old uh, fable in the Jewish Talmud of a rabbi uh, who goes to the prophet Elijah and asks, Elijah, when is the Messiah going to come? And Elijah says, why don't you just go ask him for for yourself? And the rabbi responds, where is he? He's sitting right there at the gates of the city. Well, how am I going to pick him out from the crowd of all the other people at the gates? And Elijah says this, he is sitting among the poor, covered with wounds. That's who God is. He is the wounded healer, to borrow a phrase from Henry Nouwen. You see, the scandal of Jesus wasn't his power, it's his wounds, it's by his stripes we are healed. He held together supernatural power and the loving power of a. Of a God in the most consequential suffering that we face in the midst of this world. He's a wounded healer. He held that together in one body. The scandal of the early church wasn't their success. It was their wounds, their commonness. And the scandal of the Holy Spirit isn't power. If there is a God, a creator to be made known, we can assume power is a part of the equation. The scandal is the power of God hidden away in wounded people. See, the thing that makes you an excellent candidate to be used by God it's not your gifting it's your wounds the thing that makes us excellent candidates to rewrite the story of our city through love is not our gifting or qualification or ideas it's our wounds it is our commonness Brennan Manning writes anyone God uses significantly is always deeply wounded We are each and every one of us insignificant people whom God has called and graced to use in a significant way. On the last day, Jesus will look us over not for medals, diplomas, or honors, but for scars. Are you common and wounded? Wow. (laughs) What a start. God's not looking for people who haven't figured out. And there aren't any spells or techniques to master. By the Spirit, the powerfully healed become powerful healers. And the most powerful healing that comes from your life will always come from your healed wounds. By His wounds we are healed, and by our wounds we join in the healing of the world. See, the Holy Spirit means that the chronically anxious can become a non-anxious presence in the midst of your high-strung workplace, pouring life into the Dead Sea. And it means that the addicted can become a safe harbor for others who are looking to find freedom. And it means the depressed can be filled with incomprehensible joy and then give that away. That the insecure can become courageous, inviting people into the very life that they previously hid. And the quick-tempered can be flooded with self-control so that their transformation is part of the healing for those that they've previously wronged. And it goes on. And on like this in every variety imaginable. Soren Kierkegaard says, with the help of the thorn in my foot, I jump higher than any man with two sound feet. See, the dead places in our city are filled with the very life of God because our wounds become wells of living water. And everything the river was in the vision, we then become in the world. The dead places we spend our ordinary days overwhelmed are then teeming with life because this stream of living water flows from our deepest wounds, our greatest failures, our most painful suffering as healing into the world around us. So I want to close with this, with this ancient invitation Ezekiel's invitation, Jesus' invitation to come and to become, to come wounded. And to become wounded healers. So first come. Is the Spirit speaking peace over you today? Are you in need of healing? Any kind of healing? Physical healing. God cares about your body. He cares about chronic illness and about mild irritation and everything in between. Healing is a sign of the kingdom to come. What about emotional healing, an aching heart, or an anxious racing mind, a numb sleepwalking imagination, a diagnosed mental illness, a broken relationship with a parent or a child? Spiritual healing, spiritual disappointment that you've never quite recovered from in your past, spiritual abuse at the hands of a leader or a friend or a community, low expectations for God that keep you watching instead of participating, a generational pattern that haunts you. You see, sometimes God heals slowly by his presence, and sometimes he heals instantly by his power, but he's a healer. So are you in need of healing? A worldview works until it suddenly doesn't. A philosophy can't heal you. A sermon can't heal you. The God perfect in power and love can. The one who speaks order into chaos can. On the last and greatest day of the festival, Jesus stood and he said in a loud voice, Is anyone among you thirsty? Come to me. Won't you come to him today? And then secondly, I'm going to invite you in a moment to become. Is the Spirit sending you out from this place as a peacemaker? The great hope of Portland is not our collective gifts or our strengths or our potential. It is our wounds. The healed, uh, courageous enough to unbandage their wounds in public, they begin to really see. To see others through eyes of compassion, dignifying and humanizing just by their empathetic gaze and their presence. And that's because they've really been seen. They've been seen by a God who did not flinch or look away when they unbandaged their true self. But they discovered that they were naked and unashamed in the presence of this God of love. The Spirit spills into dead places bringing life. And that Spirit is within you. Whoever believes in me, as Scripture has said, living water will flow from within them. Come healed so you can go out as a wounded healer.